Last week, we looked at uh, a new series called Behold Your King. And last week, Behold Your King, as we launched into this new series, uh, we looked at two things. We looked at this king whom Pilate said, Behold, someone who is remarkable, someone who is unbelievable. And in that phrase, Behold Your King, we are confronted with a man named Jesus Christ who shows us that he is remarkable in two ways. Last week that we saw that he is remarkable in two ways. We saw that Jesus, as the king, comes, and that he's a revolutionary, and that he's a substitute, and that he will turn this world upside down. And so briefly this morning, I not only want us to remember who Jesus is, I want us to go further in John, the Gospel of John, and I want us to look at what does Jesus actually do? We know that he's a revolutionary, then he turns this world upside down. We know that he serves as our substitute. But the question this morning I want us to answer is, what exactly does he do? And it's from the passage here in John 19, verses 23 through 27. John chapter 19, verse 23 through 27. Hear the word of God. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing that cast lots, this was written hundreds of years before in Psalm 22. When David writes in Psalm 22, hundreds of years before the crucifixion, what is happening here in John 19 is a fulfillment of that scripture, a fulfillment of Psalm 22. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus where his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw mother, the mother and the disciple, disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. This is the word of God. So what are the two things that Jesus does here? The two things that Jesus does as king The two things that Jesus does here while on the cross is he covers us and he adopts us. He covers us and he adopts us. What do we see here in in John chapter 19? We see a Jesus who is what? We see a Jesus that is stripped naked. We see a Jesus whose garment and his robe and his tunic has literally been ripped off. Why? To prepare him for crucifixion. But why is that so important? You see, what the Romans wanted to do as they stripped Jesus naked, what the Romans would do is they would strip you naked before they put you on the cross because they wanted the world to know two things, that this person was utterly defenseless and vulnerable, and they wanted to expose their shame. The nakedness was a sign of utter shame and utter humiliation. And so you can imagine Jesus, the the righteous one, the one who has no shame, the one who has no guilt, the innocent one being stripped naked 
to totally expose his nakedness and to expose his shame. And where does this take us back to? It takes us back to the garden, right? And if you remember in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve were able to live in purity and in innocence. They ha- Adam and Eve had no covering. Why? Because they were able to live their life with God, seeing them for who they really are, and they were able to see each other for who they really are, and they were allowed God to see them for who they really are without any shame and without any guilt. And then exactly in Genesis 3, what happens? When sin enters the world, they're ashamed, and they're humiliated in their nakedness. They have nowhere to hide. And they try to get fig leaves to cover them, their shame, to cover their guilt. But it doesn't work. And sin in, enters in, and they wonder, where can we hide? What can cover us? And this is a, sh- a sign of shame. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Shame is that what? Shame is that deep unease. Shame is that deep unease within every single one of us that if you knew, if you knew the real me, you would be shocked and you would be appalled. Shame is that deep unease. If you really knew me, you would reject me. Soren Kierkegaard, the philosopher, said, in every human being, there is something inside that keeps them from being perfectly transparent. Kierkegaard says there's something within inside of every human that keeps them from being perfectly transparent. And we're obsessed with this. That's why we work as hard as we do, and we obsess about the way we look and how successful we are and how much money we have and our clothes and our wardrobe and if we're skinny or we have too much weight or whatever it might be or how beautiful we are or what the kids look like around us in our home and our family and the house that we live in, we are obsessed with constantly covering and constantly hiding the real you. But not Jesus. Jesus, the perfect one, Jesus, the righteous one, does what? Allows himself to be totally exposed. Why? So that we could be covered. You see, when, the, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, totally exposed in his shame, it is the great reversal. It's the reversal of the gospel. That as the garments, the bloodied garments of the righteous one are lying there on the ground, I can't help but think that the Jews went back to Isaiah 61. And it's in Isaiah 61 that it says this in verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. You see, the miracle of the cross, the good news of the cross, is that the righteous one became unrighteous. The one who had no shame took on our shame for us. When we look at Jesus on the cross, he is the one that takes on all of our shame and all of our sin and all of our guilt, and he allows his garment to be taken off in order for that righteous, bloodied garment to cover us fully. He takes on our shame. And we take on our righteousness. And the depth that you believe that this morning, 
the depth in which you believe that that is what God has done for those that are in Christ changes everything about your identity. Your identity for those that are in Christ this morning is one who is covered with the garment of salvation and a robe of righteousness. And Jesus is the one who takes on your sin and your guilt. You, this morning, for those that are in Christ, the good news is that He fully covers us. We don't have to lie. We don't have to hide. We don't have to cover up the truth because Jesus has fully covered us once and for all. But the good news here in John chapter 19 is not only does the king cover us, but he also adopts us. What happens here at the end? Jesus looks down and he says, woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. Who is this disciple? This disciple, we're later told, is John. John is the one that refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. So it's John here, the author of this gospel, writing about himself. What an intimate thing to be writing about. And this is why it's so powerful. Jesus, think about this. Jesus with the weight of the world. Think about that. The weight of the world. Who came here this morning saying, I have the weight of the world on my shoulders? I did. And so do you. But Jesus literally had the weight of the world on his shoulders. And in the midst of having the weight of the world on his shoulders, still has enough compassion and love to look down and say, my mother and the disciple whom I love must be provided for. In the midst of his greatest agony, in the midst of being separated from the Father, in the midst of taking on our shame and guilt, he says, I will still provide. I will not only provide a covering for you to cover that shame, I will provide you a new home. I will provide you a new family. And in that moment, Jesus makes a declaration to the world that through me and only through me can new community happen, can new family happen. Don't miss this. What he is saying there is blood and race and good family and bad family doesn't matter. Guess what Jesus does? He comes and he announces from the cross that the great equalizer is here. That race and blood and whether I came from a good family or a bad family, whether I came from a good social standing or a bad social standing, it does not matter. Through Jesus Christ and because of the gospel, Jesus not only covers us, but he says, I will bring you into a new family. I will bring you into new community. And every Christian this morning, everyone that says, I am in Christ and covered by Christ, is part of that new family. Think about that good news. A new family, a new identity, those that are covered by God. That's your identity. That's who you really are. And you're covered. You are covered by the blood. You are covered by the blood. And you will never, never be reconciled to one another. Never be reconciled to estranged family members. You will never be reconciled to enemies. You will never be reconciled to people that are different than you or look different than you. Until you understand the depth in which God did to reconcile you to himself. 
And when we understand the depth by which God used and what God did to reconcile you to himself, it should compel you to look at this world totally different. Your enemies, your neighbors, the people that are not like you, the people that don't look like you, the people from different families, from different races, from different cultures, from different social standings, it is the great equalizer. And God does it all through the person of Jesus Christ for those that are covered by the blood. Jesus covers us, and he creates a new family for us. In South Africa, from 1948, to 1994, they experienced the apartheid. The apartheid was a system of the government of racial segregation. But that actually doesn't sound as bad as it was. From 1948 to, 19, to, to 1994, some of the worst crimes against humanity were committed. And when the black majority came to power in 1994, Pete, the watching world, the world watched. And they wondered, what would happen? Would there be a civil war? Would there be a bloodbath? People are going to be after vengeance and justice, and rightfully so. But the church intervened. And the church was led by Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And Archbishop Desmond Tutu established what was known as the Truth Commission. And this is how the Truth Commission worked. They told all of those that were being convicted of, all of the whites that were being convicted of crimes against humanity, they said, here's how the Truth Commission works. You will have your day in court. And you will have an opportunity to look your victims in the eye and tell the truth. But here's the deal, you can't hold anything back. You can't fudge, you can't cover anything up. You tell the truth. And if you tell the truth, you will not be held accountable. But if you lie, the wrath of the state will come upon your head and you will be executed. Well, one day, a white police officer by the name of Vanderbosch, it was his turn to come into the courtroom and face the survivor of his victims in the eye. And Vanderbosch, he walks into the courtroom and he looks at this black woman from the local township and he says, I am the one that kidnapped your husband. I am the one that shot him. And I am the one that burned him. Eight years later, I am the one that kidnapped your son. And I didn't even have the decency to shoot him. I burned him alive. I am no man. And with that, he bowed his head in shame. The black woman stood up and she said, Sir, stand up and look me in the eyes. She said, I have three things, three things that I will require of you. Three things for you not to be held accountable. One, I am a young woman and you have deprived me of my love. You have deprived me of raising my son. You have deprived me of grandchildren. 
And so I insist that twice a month you come to my home and I will care for you and I will cook for you. I will be your mother and you will be my son. The second thing I require is that you would take me to the place where you burned my husband and my son so that I might collect the dirt and the ashes and together we would have a proper funeral for them. And the third thing is this that I require of you. I forgive you. And I know Jesus will forgive you if you simply ask. And to show you today that I forgive you, I ask that you come over here and allow me to give you a hug. And with that, the police officer, Vanderbosch, walked over to the woman and so full of emotion collapsed. And with that, the court rose to their feet and sang Amazing Grace. That is power. And that it can only come through Jesus Christ. When we talk about beholding your king, only Jesus, the king, has the power to do that. Only Jesus, the king, has the power to change a heart and a culture. Only Jesus has the power to take lifelong enemies and make them friends. And only Jesus has the power to take lifelong enemies and make them family. Listen to me. Today, today can be the day you can become a son or daughter of the King. Because of Jesus, the one who lived the perfect life, the one who took on your sin and shame, the one who covers you with righteousness, he today says freely, come to me, I will cover you with righteousness, I will bring you into my family, I will make you my son or my daughter, only through Jesus. Behold your king.